Welcome to the show. It is Daniel Hartman coming to you live from the Dreamaginate Sports Studios. It is 9 a.m. on the East Coast. This is your 6 a.m. West Coast wake-up call and all time zones in between and around the world. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday, July the 3rd. Well, we were all talking about it. Would the U.S. be able to overcome, prevail, get through England and uh, and they were able to do so. And as we talked about yesterday, scoring first and scoring early, I felt like would be the key. And indeed, it was. Um, getting that early goal, England was able to level, but but you could tell that 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 unsettled England. England were were playing. Um, in the, in the first part of that match, in a way where where they were trying to hold on for dear life, the U.S. were just coming, coming, coming at them, and I felt like if England were able to weather the storm in the same way that I thought if France could have weathered the storm, and the game then kind of settles down, um, that that England would have a very good chance. And uh, U.S. scores early. England comes back 10 minutes later, scores again. Alex Morgan scores on her birthday uh, later in the first half. They go into halftime, 2-1. Second half, most of the chances were with England. And, <coughs> excuse me, um, the most of the chances were with England England scores to tie the game about midway through the second half, ruled offside by a toenail. I mean, it was that tight. It was really, really close. And um, later, with about 10 minutes to go in the match, England secures a penalty, and uh, Captain steps up to take it and may have taken her worst penalty of her life. Uh, Just a horrible attempt um, a listener uh, guessed right, and um, and the captain kicked it uh, right to her. Uh, she, you know, Nair uh, still almost, I mean, it almost found its way underneath her, but she was able to, to keep it out. Um, and, and that really was the last really good chance for England to, to level the game. If if the offside call and that penalty go a different direction, obviously we're talking about England prevailing. England England's going to come out of that match feeling like they could have won. Um, it wouldn't it wouldn't surprise me if they felt like they should have won. But there is there is something that you have to understand about this U.S. Women's National Team. Number one, every team that they face in a tournament like this, the U.S is always 100% of the time going to throw the kitchen sink at you in the first 15 minutes of the match. They are going to be heavy metal soccer at you for 15 minutes. They are going to sprint, 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 attack, 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 come at you, come at you, come at you, come at you. That is what those at the top want to do. That they want to come in and and create pressure and and bully the opponent into submission in the first fifteen minutes, and they feel like if they can if they're successful in that formula and they get a goal, 
then they can dictate the rest of the match and they can keep the pressure on the opponent for the rest of the match without having to attack, attack, attack as much. And that mentality, that philosophy that these players have, the mental fortitude to be able to execute that game in, game out, knowing that the opponents know their game plan and yet still be able to pull that off consistently is remarkable. And their ability to do that over and over and over again uh, has proved to be a, a real key to their success. Get up early, make you chase. Even if you come back and tie, you know we create the pressure first. In in the scheme of soccer, in, in American soccer, there's a word that's not talked about very much in in this regard. It it is part of the global conversation about the game, and that is being a protagonist. Do we? Are we the ones who take action? Are we the reactive ones? Are we are we always reacting? Or are we the the aggressor? And the aggressor does not necessarily mean that it has to look like uh, the way the U.S. Women's National Team play in terms of style, etc. But what it does mean is that when you are the protagonist, when you are the one who is going to to be. Uh, on the front foot in the way that you play, it, it is you that is dictating, you that are determining how your opponent plays rather than allowing your opponent to determine how you want to play. And that's the real story of being a protagonist in, in a team setting. And in this setting, the U.S. came out and said, this is how we're going to play and we're going to force you to, ad to adopt to us. In England, we're unable to get a hold of the game early. They were trying to weather the storm a defensive error in the back, a header by Kristen Press, who, by the way, was fantastic yesterday. And and, 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 and I said this uh, on Twitter, and I, and I stand by this statement. Rapino has been having really great moments, and you want great moments from your top players, from your big names. You want great moments from them. But outside of those great moments, I felt like Rapino had been struggling. She'd been a step slow. Um, you know, so, some of her performances down the wing with and without the ball um, were not really causing a lot of issues for the other teams. I thought some of those performances were, were, were dreadful or were poor. And, and when you saw Kristen Press come in, energy, she, she, she was um, – creating a lot of, of problems for England down uh, their right side of their defense, the left side attack for the U.S. Um, she was on the end of that, that the uh, first goal. She, she got the header um, being there uh, on, the, on the back post. Um, when you when you saw that change, uh, it, it was it was tremendous. And one of the other things we talked about yesterday too was Lindsey Horan playing Lindsey Horan from the top. I felt like was going to be a key. Jill Ellis did do that. Um, I, I would love to think that she's listening and watching this show, but um, that, that that's probably not the case. But I nonetheless, I'm glad that she she put Lindsey Horan in from the start um, and. And having Kristen Press and Lindsey Horan in, I felt like was a big, big difference. So kudos to Jill Ellis and her staff 
for for making those changes um, and 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 running uh, those two players out in the starting eleven. And I think it really helped the U.S., especially in the beginning of the match, to, to just put pressure, keep pressure. And uh, even though England were able to equalize, uh, it took them a while to kind of get you know get things kind of leveled out. I, I don't think England ever fully played the game that they wanted to play, and um, and that is a credit to the U.S. women's national team. Uh, they had moments, but I don't think I think England. Were, were you know fell victim to trying to beat the U.S. using the U.S.'s tactics. So there was a lot of like get the ball out, try to do a big switch, um, not necessarily attacking through the middle, which was a lot of pregame chatter. Was that England were going to try to come up and attack through the middle? That wasn't consistent. There was a lot of impatience trying to get back down the wing, which is very much that American style and. Um, there's not a team in the world that can execute the U.S. women's national team um, style as well as the U.S. women's national team. So you're really kind of playing into their hands. Even though England had more possession than the U.S., it wasn't an overwhelming number. And and that was, to me, where, where England were unsuccessful in being the protagonist for much of the match in the way that I, I'm sure they were hoping they would be. Uh, it if England were going to have a real good chance to win, I felt like they needed to be in that 60 to 65% possession uh, range for the game. And they were down in the fifties uh, for the match. And that was a symbolic of the fact that, that England were also wasteful with, with their possession, very impatient at times. And um, you know, matter of inches from tying the game, etc. And I get it. Uh, but uh, I felt like England could have, could have done a little bit better in their execution and, and maybe we see a different result. But nonetheless, it worked out the way we were hoping uh, if you're an American. And uh, we are on to the finals today, the second semifinal, Netherlands-Sweden. I think I think the Netherlands uh, win this match and face the U.S. in uh, in the final. But uh, we'll, we will see. I don't know. Uh, other news I wanted to get to quickly, um, and that is uh, it, it came out today that the Premier League are a step closer to the Women's Super League takeover from the English Football Association. Clubs unanimously agreed to conduct a feasibility study into the idea at a shareholders, shareholders meeting last month. Um, the FA is understood to be open to the idea and see the women's England teams and grassroots participation as their long-term priorities. Any takeover could be uh, several seasons away. And um, the FA, uh, which set up the uh, WSL in 2011, uh, and o- and and has seen um, overseen its development to become Europe's only full-time professional competition with 12 teams for 2019 and 20. Uh, Premier League affiliated clubs make up 13 of the 22 sides in the women's top two divisions, and some believe the WSL could be run more professionally. The league has recently been boosted by the promotion of Manchester United and Tottenham Hotspur to the top division and a 10 million pound sponsorship deal with Barclays. Couple points there. Here we see England investing, putting resources into the, into the women's game, 
Uh, we've had several guests on, including Jack Gidney, talk about the money coming into the women's side of the game in England and the difference that that is already beginning to make. We have seen that with England making a, a deep run in this tournament, and I think that's only going to progress and get bigger and better uh, for the England women's national team uh, and program. Last year, the FA revealed they are to increase their investment in women's and girls' football by a further further 50 million pounds over six years. They are halfway through their four-year game plan for growth strategy, aiming to boost participation and create a high-performance system for England teams. So England is, is putting money. They're putting resources into the women's side of the game and and they they've already got two divisions promotion relegation in place it's that's part of the culture it's part of the way you do what you do the nwsl here in the u.s is struggling nine teams having lost the boston breakers we need to open this thing up allow any ownership group to put in a team into the top division and have a second division, a third division, and figure out a, a, an open pyramid and allow the game to grow organically. Let the market begin to shape what we see around the country uh, on the women's side as well as the men's side. And uh, and we're seeing this on the, the women's side in England. Money is pouring in, the money that we are not getting here in the U.S., even though we have the preeminent uh, gold standard women's national team in the world. We don't have a league that is equal to that. And uh, and we've got to get there uh, in a hurry or the success we are seeing means that uh, the, the, the best way forward for our players to continue that success is going to be to go to Europe and play. And uh, even though that is a necessity for the men, we, we, we could catch up before it's too late on the women's side and make this be the destination league to play in. And, um, and I think we should do that. I think we should make that a focus. So um, our, um, before we get to uh, our, our guests coming up after the break, uh, I just want to let you know that this interview, we, we were able to tape um, a couple nights ago um, due to scheduling and vacation and 4th of July plans. And uh, Thomas Sawinski Jr., Tom, uh, and I met uh, 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 several years ago when uh, Eric Winalda was running for president of U.S. Soccer. And uh, it's going to be a a fun chat looking at some different ways that we can improve soccer in this country. Um, And uh, you'll also hear his hopes for the game last night, which uh, have turned out... uh, you know that we that we were able to move through two one. I think um, I think he predicts three one. So we shall see in the interview coming up just a minute after the break. Our our sponsor uh, this half hour is Ducktick Brand D U K T I G Brand dot com. Get your journals, get your planners, see their products. Use promo code DWSHOW to get 10% off your order. DWSHOW to get 10% off your order. Do it today. You will not regret it. We will be uh, right back in just a few moments with an interview we did the other night with Tom Sawinski. Thanks for tuning in this July the 3rd, and uh, we are uh, celebrating that, that victory yesterday. And uh, look forward to uh, a final on Sunday for this U.S. Women's National Team. We'll be right back after this. 
Welcome back to the show. Thanks for tuning in this Wednesday morning, July the 3rd. We are pleased to be joined by Thomas Sawinski Jr., otherwise known as Tom. Tom, welcome to the show. How are you this morning? I am doing well, Daniel. How are you? I am doing great. Um, You and I met back in 2017 whenever... um, I was uh, working with Eric Winaldo on his campaign for president of U.S. soccer. And at the time, you were uh, president of the New Hampshire uh, Soccer Association. Um, and we hit it off, both both uh, both of us dads of two boys, two soccer-playing, uh, soccer-loving boys, soccer families, had a lot in common. Uh, and since then, you made the move out west. Uh, what are you doing uh, nowadays uh, in soccer, serving the game here in America? Well, right now I'm uh, representing the West region for U.S. Youth Soccer as their representative to the board of directors. So in that role, um, what what is your primary uh, responsibility or responsibilities as a representative to the board uh, of U.S. Youth Soccer for the West? So we've got 14 states here in, in, in the far west region, and it's it's my job to understand what their needs, their concerns are, uh, to, to bring and represent to the board. Uh, my focus is more on the policy and governance side, uh, and I've got a counterpart, a general manager, Mar- Marley Wilson, who is more focused on the operational side. So together, Marley and I uh, work, work very well. He's a paid employee of, of U.S. youth, and I'm a volunteer. And we both, you know, work to support our constituency from uh, the operational side in Marley's case and a uh, policy and governance side from from my from my standpoint. For the for the audience, uh, could you give us just, a, you know, a, a hypothetical example of an issue that you might be looking to resolve on behalf of one of your constituent states uh, in the West region? Sure. sure. One of the things that uh, is, is a big topic and it's a big topic around the country. Uh, it, it's certainly in the, the, the space of protecting children and, and how are we implementing all these child safe rules? Uh, you know, the president passed a, passed a law, you know, what going on 18 months now, uh, that, that all sports organizations must have uh, a way of validating that the adults that are that are taking part in, in their in their in growing their kids uh, don't have you know any 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 issues in their background and that those those adults are safe. And there's a lot of questions around uh, you know how are we implementing it from a U.S. youth soccer perspective, from a U.S. soccer perspective. You know, if you can imagine, you know, we're in 50 different states where each state. Has as differences in laws and differences in rules and, and, and how we do background checks on, on, on the adults that are, that are serving our children. And, you know, we need to understand those and, and work and work as a, as a national body to support all of them. And there's, you know, unique uh, differences between, between each. And so I've, I've fielded a lot of questions around, uh, you know, what, what are we doing from a, from a national body perspective, and also what are we doing as from uh, from the federation perspective? So, uh, in your role as uh, the the West representative, you also serve on the U.S. Youth Soccer Board of Directors. Um, the The U.S. Uh, youth Soccer um, Organization is the largest um, 
member in terms of uh, player registrations in the entire country, if I'm correct. Um, we are. Yeah, we've got, uh, not, and not just, you know, in terms of the U.S. Soccer Federation, but I think we are the largest youth organization in the country. We've got a little over 3 million youth members and about uh, 900,000 adult volunteers that, that you know, are, are in our organization. So a big, this is a big deal. This is not a, uh, this is not a small potatoes uh, setup. There, you've got a lot of, lot of kids, a lot of adults, moving in uh, a lot of different directions depending on what part of the country they're from, uh, you know what what their local soccer scene is like, etc. You know, when you when you are in a board meeting or you are talking to constituents uh, in the states, having your background as a state association president in New Hampshire, um, you know, what uh, what are you looking to to do in terms of helping uh, grow the sport uh, for this country and continue to try to find ways to build the sport throughout uh, the U.S.? Well, you know, first and foremost, being a youth organization, it's it's making sure that we keep the kids in mind uh, through through all the decisions. You know, they're our constituency uh, as as you know the ultimate end customer. Uh, so it, it's providing them with the various different types of programming to to develop as young players. Uh, you know, we've got kids of all different abilities. Uh, you know, some some from you know your 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 top players down to your recreational players. We've got players, uh, you know, with various uh, disabilities. We've got a great program in top soccer that uh, allows them to, to play the game and, that they love, uh, but in a, in a manner that they can do it. And so it's, it's making sure that all, all of our kids have an opportunity to fall in love with the game and, and really become players for life. So a, a player, uh, you, you mentioned several different players, different backgrounds, uh, some maybe with some physical challenges, etc. Um, can you define uh, what what a player pathway would be for some of those players, and and how you how you envision growing uh, those player pathways uh, to give more access and opportunity to some of these kids? Yeah, you know, the player pathway has been something that's been talked a lot about, uh, you know, both regionally and nationally. Uh, it's it's difficult for a parent today, uh, one that may not know anything about soccer and have a, a young player that absolutely loves the game to know where is the right place to put them. Who do I even go to? And most of the times what they start off with is their local town organization. They'll go and They'll play in their rec department. They'll play in the local youth organizations. And that's typically where most, most players will get their start. But then once you, you, you get in there and you start playing, where do you go? You've got a lot of competition from, uh, you know, local clubs, area clubs. Uh, you've got your, your, your Olympic development programs that we have through U.S. youth that you can play into. And then you've got, regional and national tournaments to go to. But then as you continue to get older, how does that feed into high school? How does that feed into college? If I want to get onto an MLS team, if I want to be seen by our national team coaches, where do I go? You know, if I'm a, if I'm a very good player, uh, I'm going to use a, a, this uh, Wyoming, for example. If you're in Wyoming, how do you get seen by a national team scout? 
you know, if you're a really, really good player coming out of Wyoming, you know, how, how do you get identified? And we need to find those opportunities so that, you know, we can identify players so that they can continue their pathway, but then encourage them to also, all pathways don't lead to the national team. You know, many, many players, and I'd say the vast majority of players, they're going to, you know, go on, play high school, some will play college, some may make it into the MLS or NWSL or maybe even into UPSL leagues. But we also have players that eventually they're going to become your next coaches. And, and how do we encourage these players to, to become good coaches and give back to the game and, and help the next crop of players to grow? And then some of these players are going to become referees. And how do we encourage players to become referees? You know, referees and referee shortage is a big challenge right now. Uh, and really it's, you know, coaches and parents that uh, are just a, a abusive to, to young referees. They say, it's not worth it. I'm not going to do it. And so how do we make that environment better and encourage players that, you know, hey, you, you know the game very well. Maybe you should go into refereeing because if we're going to grow this game, we, we, we want to add players, but we also have to add coaches and referees as well. So it's helping that parent who may not understand the system and being a parent in the system, I can often I can say it's often confusing. What's the right pathway for, for, for my boys? And ultimately, we need to build a pathway for, for each individual player that they know, if I'm going to be playing in college, here's where I want to go. And here's where I aspire to be. And, and, and if I'm going to be going into and you know, and trying to get on the national team because I, I believe I'm that good, here's where I need to be to be seen. And so each, each player is going to have their individual pathway. Uh, every, every player is going to peak at a different age. Uh, some players peak later than others. Some players peak earlier. And you, ultimately, at the end of the day, we want to find a way that we have kids that fall in love with this game for life. And regardless of where they end up, when they're older like you and I are, they're giving back to the game just like we do. So uh, speak for yourself when we're older. I, uh, I'm choosing to ignore that last comment you made. Uh, <laughs> um, we're not kids anymore. Oh, man. I, I choose to still picture myself in my 20s. That's just in my head. That's just kind of <laughs> where I blocked that. Um, and um, so, you know, I, I'm, I'm just going to ignore that last comment you made. Um, when, when we uh, look at some of those, those player pathways and, and opportunities, um, there, there's kind of uh, two kind of uh, system or set- setups uh, that are often mentioned in relation to our system, and that is the inner cities. And it's also the rural areas, areas where where there's not a, a big, massive population density and in, in creates its own set of challenges in terms of travel, access, etc. How can we grow um, our inner city uh, programming? And then uh, and then also uh, f- the follow up to that would be how can we grow our our rural programming to make uh, to make the game more accessible in those communities as well. Yeah, it's a, it's a very good question because uh, you know both are areas where we would call you know they're underserved, and while both are underserved areas, they both come with their own logistical and unique challenges. Uh, you know, certainly with with inner city youth, a lot of times you know they're they're poor. Um, how do we get them into the game? You know, 
there's 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 a lot of great groups out there that are looking to try and you know grow futsal courts and and build and give more to the community so that you know these 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 athletes have the ability to 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 play and grow with the game. But at the end of the day, you know there's certainly a, a cost barrier uh, to, to 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 some of the inner cities. And how do we help out and, de- and defray that cost? Unfortunately, you know there's there's certain fixed costs with with, with whether it's leagues, equipment, um, tournaments, et cetera, you know, it's, it's, there's, there's costs that are associated. And as much as, you know, I'm not a big fan of the pay to play, especially when the parents are the ones that have to pay, we do have to find a way of, you know, paying for those costs because the costs are there and we need to be better at providing opportunities to, to lower that cost or eliminate that cost for, for these players if we're going to find, you know, some of the next top talents, uh, they, they're, they're going to come out of some of the inner cities and we need to encourage them to get into the game, to come play where, play where it's safe uh, in an environment that they're allowed to thrive, grow. We, we, we just talked about pathways and, and, you know, allow them to be seen so that, so that they can, you know, one day play professionally and and what they're doing. But even if they don't play professionally, just be able to be in the game and maybe one day they become the next coaches that give back to their communities and grow for the next generation of of, of inner city youth. And being at the the regional championships uh, last weekend in Idaho, you know, there were some teams that were coming up that were, uh, you know, funded by whether it was Las Vegas um, or, or LA, you know, they've got, teams and, and clubs there, um, you know, Las Vegas Sporting Club, you know, they, they provide, they do a very good job at, at supporting and, and providing, you know, opportunities for some of the inner city kids to, to come and play. And they, they play some great, great ball. Uh, you know, likewise, if you, if you look, um, you know, while we've got a lot of inner cities in my, in my region, we've also got some states that are, you know, have some, other logistical challenges, which are very rural, uh, you know, Wyoming, Montana, Alaska, uh, New Mexico. Some of these states are are, are very, you know, um, large from a from a landmass size, but their populations aren't as big. And so, you, you know, you can't fix the population quickly, right? That's a that's a that's something that's kind of outside of our scope. But being able to uh, promote soccer in a way so that the travel is not always a, a prohibitive factor, you know, being able to you know, maybe host jamborees. So you're not traveling every single weekend, but maybe you're traveling every other weekend and everyone's coming together into one central location so that you can get a game or two in over the course of the weekend uh, and, and not have to do it all the time because the travel in those States, you know, it can take you two hours to drive one way to play an hour and a half game, you know, that, that, that doesn't make sense, especially when we're talking about young kids, you know, spending more time in the car than playing the game you love. It's, it's not always helpful. So it's, it's finding ways. Maybe we play smaller side of games. And instead of trying to find 11 V 11 teams, we're playing nine V nine or even seven V seven and finding ways to, to still play the sport, still be competitive, still develop players. But, you can do it outside the traditional norms because to me, having the kids play is better than not having them do it. So it's looking outside the box in ways that we can, we can provide those opportunities. 
when when we look at um, para athletes um, in our you know Paralympic programming, uh, that we the, there's a recent uh, uh, official name change of the U.S. Olympic Committee to the U.S. Olympic and Paralympic Committee, um, which I thought was a, a, a nice positive step. Uh, in terms of the the official organization and 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 kind of recognizing all that they do and um, when we look at our you know um, programming for players uh, you know whether that be deaf soccer or or other um, you know soccer uh, programming for players with disabilities etc um what can we do as a country to to grow those programs, make them more accessible, and uh, and and find ways for more and more communities to get involved in that aspect of the game? Oh, I think it's a great question because you know I can honestly say myself that uh, you know even going back a few years ago, I, I did not realize that we had these these types of programs. You know, as a, as a kid growing up, I didn't know that you know we would you would have those pathways and, and, you know, recognizing that there were opportunities like top soccer. Uh, I didn't know about that for, for a long time, largely because, you know, I, I, I didn't know someone who was, who was had a disability and would play in a program like that. So one of the things that we need to do is, is be better at raising the awareness in the first place. We have these programs, you know, soccer is a game for all. And, you know, I, I, I made a tweet a, last week about it um i love watching power soccer you see what these athletes can do i mean they're in they're in wheelchairs and you watch what they can do on a court with a ball it's absolutely amazing and being able to put those opportunities out there and get them in front and and, and raise awareness is is critical i think one of the ways we can do it is you know raising that awareness when you're watching a game like the, the women's world cup you've got the gold cup and the women's world cup going on right now you know, let's put some advertising out there while you've got people's attention and raise the awareness about these, about these, uh, these programs, because they, they, they are, they are critical. Um, and you've got your, your, your Paralympic team, you've got your deaf national team, you know, both of which are, you know, supported, uh, you know, through, through the Federation, through the Olympic committee and being able to let, parents know who may have you know a child with a disability that hey there's places for your for your kid to play is important and how, how do we get that out it's 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 around raising the awareness it's about getting the message out that there there are these programs and we talked a little bit about pathways you know how how would how would a parent know if they've got a, a child who's deaf but loves the sport how would they know where to get this you know give this player the development that they need because I had a great opportunity last summer to host the the the, deaf, the men's deaf national team in Foxborough, and and we went over and and um, I had a chance to watch them play a game, and it's very interesting how they, you know, communicate and they, they use such verbal or or uh, visual cues and how the referees need to play with a flag and when there's a whistle, you know, they they put a, a visual cue up so that the players know that there's been, you know, a, a whistle or a stoppage in play. It was amazing to watch. It's totally different. And had I not been there, I would not have known this. And 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 so now that it's 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 an awareness for me. I think 
you know, it's it's partly my job to help raise the awareness for others to know that they're here, but it's also, I think, as a as an organization in a country, we need to, to, to better highlight that those programs exist. You mentioned pay-to-play uh, soccer a few minutes ago, and uh, there's been some articles uh, written over the last few years about the cost for families to participate in travel soccer and uh, and 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 not only the cost but also the the amount of time and you and you referenced a little bit of that as well in terms of travel time getting to and from matches etc what can we do to to grow the game and make it more accessible to more communities uh and and at the same time lower the barrier of entry as well as trying to reduce some of the burden of travel on on these families you know it's 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 interesting because as a as a country and as a you know as parents we always want the best for our children and we want to put our children in the best places to grow and to develop and uh it really could be could be anything whether it's soccer or anything else and and you know eric and i were talking about this during his campaign he asked you know you know, what is it that, you know, why do we do it for our kids? And I told him, my kids happen to love soccer. My kids love piano. I'd be supporting them and, you know, becoming the best pianist out there. But a lot of parents, you know, they want, we all want the best for our children. And we try to find the best opportunities and we're willing to pay any money to, to do it. But not every parent has, comes from the same means. And as much as you want to, you would love to pay so, so your kid can go play in a top club, it's not always feasible. And so how do we, how do we reduce that? And, you know, I've talked a lot with various different clubs and coaches and the, the reality is, is that there's costs and somebody has to pay for those costs, but it, it doesn't have to always be the parent. And I think the fact that, you know, MLS is looking at solidarity payments for some of the players that have left to go play in Europe. I think that's a good first step. And and here's the reason why I say that. I have a very good friend, um, Tosh Farrell. He used to be the uh, director of Everton's Youth Academy. Um, my oldest son, Tommy, played for him when he had his own development academy here in the United States. And Tosh and I have stayed friends through the years. And last year, last summer, my boys went over to go play um, at a play play with him in a camp and and I, I took Tosh and his wife out for dinner one night with my family and Tosh and I were talking and he was telling me that the club he's also working with um the Kendalltown Wanderers they're a sixth or seventh division club but their goal is not to try and make their way up into the next division or even to try and ever get into the first division their goal is to develop players and how they do it is they bring players in they have them play and as they develop players and they showcase the players, those players are then sold to higher teams. So as that player develops and needs to move beyond that club, Kendalltown makes money off of that because it's the investment that they've made in the player to develop that player. Well, they use that money to reinvest in growing and developing other players. And so the costs are borne by the club. They're not borne by the player themselves. And, I think if we can find a way in the United States to get to a model where you're not always trying to fight over the same players, that you can grow and develop in your local club, and if you go and you move up in, in, into a merit-based ladder of play, 
you can find ways of as as those solidarity payments. Um, and, and for those that don't know what a solidarity payment is, it's 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 when a it's when a player you know in, in other leagues throughout the world gets purchased by a larger club. The clubs that help develop that player get a portion of of the fee. And and even if you were a smaller club, you still get a portion for helping to develop that player. So that model of solidarity payments allows for the cost to be over, you know, the cost borne by the club to develop the player to be covered, but it's not covered by the parent. And so, yes, there are costs to develop players, but we need to find a way that we can reduce the cost on the parent so the player, regardless of their parents' means, can really develop and grow because all all parents want the best for their kids, but not all have the means. And this shouldn't be a this this sport shouldn't be about or really any sport. It shouldn't be about whose parents have the most money. It should be really a merit based system, based off of how I play as a player, and let's let the best players compete and move up to the top levels. Speaking of uh, meritocracy and competing uh, in and excellence, how can we as a country uh, get better at the game of soccer as a whole? How can we reach for excellence and grow and and, and take those next steps uh, of growth in this country in terms of competition, merit, uh, excellence, etc.? Well, I mean, it's certainly, you know, in terms of growing the game, it's getting more players in, you know, at the grassroots level. Um, but, you know, when you talk about meritocracy and, and, and development of players, it's creating that environment where the best move on. That's what competition is built on. That's what, you know, American America has been built on. It's been, you know, the competition within America. I mean, it's driven innovation. It's driven advancements in technology. It's driven advancements in medicine and, 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 uh, you know, the medical uh, field. So competition is always going to be the way to, to, to make ourselves better. And so we need to find ways of growing the game and allowing the best to continue to grow and develop. And one of the things that I, I believe we do have to get to, and, you know, certainly our women's team is having a phenomenal World Cup right now. Our men are doing well in the Gold Cup. But you look at other countries and they're, they're really investing in their programs. And we've had a very tight game against France two to one, um, the other night. And, you know, we're, we're pre-taping this before the, the women's game against England, but, you know, you take a look at the amount of, um, you know, effort England has put into their, their game. I think our, I think our, our women are going to have their, their hands full against the lionesses, um, tomorrow night. So how do we continue to grow this game? Uh, we need to create some of the best leagues in the world. You know, everybody wants to go to 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 Europe to play, um, and and really, you know, I'd say the Premier League is probably the top place most people want to end up and play. Um, you know, you take a look look at Christian Pulisic. Uh, he just left Dortmund, and he's now gonna gonna be at Chelsea. And why is it that our young players, our Timothy Ways, our Christian Pulisic, are going to Europe to play and develop when European players? Tim Rooney, Zlatan Ibrahimovic, they're coming over to the MLS at the twilight of their career to play a few more years before they officially retire. I want the MLS, I want the NWSL to be some of the top leagues in the world. And we'll know we're there when 
the young players, the young pop players in the world are coming to the MLS or the NWSL to play and not our young players going elsewhere. So we need to find a way of, of making those leagues really, really strong so that A, we retain and develop our own talent and B, we're attracting some of the top talent across the world because if our players really want to compete on the world stage, especially our men who have struggled of late, we need to find a way of developing them at that level. And, you know, the MLS is not there yet. I mean, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a great league. I, I, I love following it. Although I will say that the new England revolution has been disappointing me as of late these last few years, but, uh, I still love them even out here in California. Um, but how do we make that league and the NWSL as strong as they can be? Because ultimately that's where you're trying to get to. It's where you're trying to compete um, to get to. And if we have a pathway that allows you to continue to move up and get to that place, uh, we're going to build the competition that I know America can build. We've done it before. You look at the rest of our some of our major sports and their athletes, we can do it. We've got the people to do it. We've got the population. We've got the money and the investment. Uh, we can we can do it. So uh, I, I have faith there that, that, that we're going to get there. In terms of building our leagues into the best uh, leagues in the world and raising that quality and excellence, um, how can we... Uh, provide more opportunities, especially on the women's side. You know, the NWSL lost the Boston Breakers down to nine teams. You you, you see these investments uh, being made over in England, for example. They're putting a lot of money into their women's uh, league, uh, which is providing uh, a lot of incentives for the clubs uh, and, and the players. And, and now that those players are, are getting to, to live and work as, you know, professional players. Um, and, and that is their job. They're not having to, to, to kind of play part-time and then, and then still be a soccer player that that is, uh, their professional, uh, profession. Uh, how can we see, uh, the NWSL, uh, in, in the women's league grow, uh, and match what is, to me, the gold standard of women's national teams in the world, and that's our U.S. women's national team uh, program. It has been it has been at the top for a long time, uh, and a lot of countries um, have been trying to figure out ways to, to, quite frankly, topple our women's national team uh, and catch up. And uh, they've been the standard. They they have they have been the, the standard of excellence and. Uh, and have, have been trying to uh, lead by example. Um, I, to me, I I think they are probably the, uh, and I said this on the show yesterday, they're probably the greatest example of a front runner uh, team in soccer in the world right now. Uh, they, it is just amazing to see uh, everyone's gunning for them. They know it, and they just keep they keep coming um and uh and and they keep you know pushing themselves for excellence um you know and and so how do we get that into our our women's professional league the nwsl uh how do we build excellence in there and competition and grow into more markets so that we can 
make this even more accessible uh, to our, our girls growing up right now who want to be the next Alex Morgan or, uh, you know, be the next Crystal Dunn uh, or, or Mal Pugh, etc.? You know, I, I I love watching our women play. I mean, they are so exciting. Uh, they're 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 having a very wonderful uh, World Cup this time around. Uh, certainly, I would say you know definitely the if they weren't the favorites to win it coming in, they're definitely the favorites now. I don't know who wouldn't have had them the favorites. Maybe France, but uh, you know the French probably thought France was going to beat them. But and I say this I say this a lot when in business. And I talk with, you know, companies I've worked with, you don't innovate and change what you do on your way down. You innovate when you're at your top. And our women are at the top of their game. There's no question about it. But you're absolutely right. Every single country is gunning for them. And having a nine-team professional league in the United States for the women uh, is is just not going. It's not enough. We need we need to grow and expand that league, and provide more opportunities for for our young our young girls and our women to to continue to develop and grow and 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 be ready to compete on the on the top stage. You know, we were talking you know just a minute ago about you know how competition creates you know some of the best players, and, and we need to continue that. Competition in the in the US for the women where our top female athletes they're able to focus on being the best footballer soccer player in the world uh, not having to worry about you know I, I need to go work after training or after you know after my morning workouts I have to go to my my other job because I, I've got bills to pay they need to be able to focus on you know being able to develop as players you know you take a look at what um, what England's doing. And I think all of their Premier League clubs have women's teams now. And they're, and those Premier League clubs, you know, whether it's uh, you know, the Chelsea women, the Liverpool women, um, they, are, they are supported by their, their men's teams. And we've got a couple of clubs like that here in the U.S. where, you know, the men and women, um, you know, they're owned by the same, the same people. But if we really want to grow this game, you know, maybe we, maybe we need to, you know, take a look at what other countries are doing. And I'm not saying to copy them, but to understand what they're doing, how they're spending their money, how they're making the investments so that as a nation, we can find out what works for us and continue to make that investment in the women's game so that, yeah, people are going to keep gunning for them, but they're still staying on top. And we can only do that by, by reinventing how we develop our women so that our women stay at the top of their game. So in, in looking at uh, access and opportunity on a macro level, um, if you're, if you're, you know, a young kid, uh, you know, say, you know, say you're a kid named Miguel and you're growing up in West Texas or New Mexico, um, you know, or you're a kid growing up on the you know, inner cities uh, of Baltimore, Maryland, uh, how can we as a country um, create uh, more opportunities and cheaper barriers for those kids to get scouted 
in in and get seen in order to get better opportunities uh, in terms of pathways to national teams, colleges, etc. Well, I think you know, for any kid, you know, regardless of you know their their background, their parents' economic ability, their demographics, etc. We need to find ways of, of getting, you know, whether it's an inner city kid, if it's a rural kid, we need to find ways of getting them identified. And, and right now, the, the biggest way to get identified is to make it into a development academy team, you know, the U.S. Soccer's DA. And, you know, you go to the showcases, and that's where the national team scouts are. A lot of college coaches go there because it's a, it's a great place to showcase some of the top talent. But I think they're... There's 36 states that don't have a development academy, I think is the latest statistic. I could be off by, by a state or two, but I think it's 36 don't have a DA. Um, how's a kid in Montana going to get noticed? I mean, if that's, where, if that's really where you're going to get noticed, how do you get noticed? You know, I would love to see um, you know, something like the you know, ODP compete with some of the DAs. So, so if you're if you're a player and you know you've earned your spot to, to to get into some of these DA showcases, why can't a why can't a state Olympic development program go and compete in some of these showcases? If we really are about finding and developing the best, why are, why is the net cast so small? And and I'm not you know certainly you know questioning why, um, but it you know we need to find a way of getting more access, not limiting access, and. Getting those opportunities for players to get in front of you know those that that are that are making the decisions on who should should, should go to the next level or who should be invited to a training camp, et cetera, uh, we got to really get our best in front of it. So building that pathway, and I think ODP is a great way to do it because it's in all fifty five state associations. And if you can get your best players in the state that aren't playing in a development academy program, um, get them into ODP. How do we reduce the barriers to get players into, into, into that program? You know, those are some of the things that, you know, we're, 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 is on my agenda to work on, but how do we get the, get more players in ODP, make those ODP teams stronger and get those ODP teams in front of, you know, some of the same scouts that are looking at DA players, because I'm going to bet there's a lot of players that aren't in the DA that are very deserving to be at maybe some of our, um, you know, whether it's our youth national training camps or some of our, um, you know, senior training camps, I, I bet there's some players that are being overlooked. So I want to I want to close with uh, one final question. It's a question I've I've been asking a lot of our guests, and I think you have a, a, a real uh, unique insight into uh, American soccer. Um, U.S. soccer, uh, U.S. youth soccer, your time as a president of a state association now serving on the board of U.S. youth soccer. Um, If you were in charge of American soccer at large for a day and you could do anything with your day in charge, what would you do? with uh with that 24 hours and and that ability to grow improve change alter etc american soccer and make it better well you're giving me the magic wand Um, i did i I would man this that's a tough question to answer um 
I don't think it's something that 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 it's going to take a magic wand to do. Um, but if there was a way that I could lower the cost for players, get more players involved, because to me it starts at the youth level. It starts as a at the grassroots. It starts at recreation. So getting players involved to love the game and if I could do that and get more players in and I mean you're only giving me one day so it's very difficult but if I if, if I could just sprinkle my magic pixie dust across the United States I would be planting seeds all over the country to grow this game whether it's you know lighted futsal courts um and you and I have talked about this, those, those futsal courts that have the basketball nets on them, you see them all over Europe and England. I would right. put those everywhere, put them everywhere. You know, they, I, I take the BART. Um, and for those that don't know what the BART is, it's the barrier rapid transportation. It's what I take to work. And, you know, I, I, I go through some poor neighborhoods in Oakland and, and I see empty lots. I'm like, that'd be a great place for a futsal court. You know, I, I, I think, there's, there's so many opportunities to, to create safe places for kids to play that just get them to love the game. Let them fall in love with it and, and, and really enjoy the small side aspect. You know, you don't have to have these big 11 v 11 pitches. Do a futsal court. Play three on three. Play four on four. You know, it's, it's, it's simple to do. All you need is a ball. You know, it's, it's part of the reason why I think basketball has been so successful in this country is that you can put a basketball court anywhere. Well, guess what? You can put a net underneath the basketball hoop. And and, and, and I would really encourage people to start doing that. Um, and so if there is, that would be what I would try and do, get more kids and to, to, to fall in love with this game. Well, I think I think that is a, a great um, a, a great place to focus on. Uh, the more we can get uh, kids playing the game, loving the game, uh, falling in love with the game, and and getting technically proficient at the game, uh, and 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 you you get those natural you know competitive. Um, matches between kids you see it you know two on two three on three uh three on two i mean you, you and you watch and you watch them play and i think that's part of that basketball culture that you uh were referring to if we could get some of that going in in american soccer i think i think american soccer at large would be better for it if we could do that in, in scale uh, on a macro level across yeah. the country for sure. Uh, it would help but the us. The Brazilians do it. They play small sided from the time they're little. They they don't go out. They don't go and play on a full size pitch for a while. Yeah, and yeah. I I think it's you know it, it's. Uh, um, I had Tom Byer on the show on Monday, and he was talking uh, about culture. And, uh, and and now culture eats strategy for breakfast. And, um, and, and so finding ways for us to improve our soccer culture uh, is what you were hitting on. And I think that's a, that's a, it's a, a great place for us to, to wind up our conversation today. And, and it was a great answer from you. I, I really appreciate you coming on the show. 
spending some time with us um, and uh, and sharing your thoughts about American soccer and how we can continue to, to grow and find ways to get better um, and, and get more kids involved playing the game, etc. Uh, good luck with your work out there in, uh, in, in the West region uh, and serving on the board of directors of U.S. Youth Soccer. And we look forward to having you back on again uh, in the future. Daniel, thank you. This was uh, was really good, and uh, hopefully, you know, where this is pre-taped, uh, hopefully, I'm not going to jinx them. But uh, want to say congrats to our to our women's team. We shall see uh, on uh, on on Wednesday morning. Uh, we shall see how this thing uh, turns out between uh, the U.S. and England. Um, you know, my prediction going into the match was uh, the same as for France. If the U.S. scores early, uh, I think that that bodes well for them. If England score early, I think it could be trouble. And um, and, and not to say that the U.S. couldn't come back. I just um, that's just my feeling on the game. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully the U.S. get a get an early goal and are able to uh, keep the pressure on from there. So we'll see how it shapes up. Sounds good. My prediction is three one. We'll see how it. Uh... And that's 3-1 U.S. Our women are going to be victorious. All right. Well, we'll see how that plays out, my man. Thank you. Uh, thank you for coming on the show. And uh, like I said, we look forward to having you back on again in the future. Definitely. Daniel, take care. Have a good fourth. Thank you. That take was care. Tom Sawinski, and uh, really appreciate him coming on the show. Uh, our sponsor this half hour is Charity Water. You can learn more about Charity Water at charitywater.org. You can join the story, be a part of the movement at charitywater.org. We'll be right back after this. No one, no man, no woman, no child should ever have to drink green water with bugs, with algae, with disease in it. Bad water and a lack of toilets kills more people than all the wars in the world. We know how to bring clean drinking water right now to every single person on earth. And when you can bring water into communities, it truly transforms them. It changes everything. Now you could know that you'd made a difference. You could know that you had truly impacted the life of a family, of a community, of a region. There was either clean water or there wasn't. We believe in a world where every single person has clean and safe water to drink, and we will continue fighting until that happens. Welcome to the show. Thanks uh, for tuning in today, July the 3rd. Uh, that was our interview we taped with Thomas Sawinski the other night. Uh, his prediction, 3-1. He was close. 2-1. The U.S. pulled off the victory against England. It was a back-and-forth affair. Um, like like we said earlier, could have gone either way, but uh, ended up in, in our favor. So, uh, final on Sunday the other semifinal today to see who plays the U.S. I think it's going to be the Netherlands that, that beats Sweden. Um, 
And uh, also last night, Argentina, Brazil, a contentious semifinal in Copa America. Messi, after the match, was furious with the referees. Felt like uh, Aguero had gotten fouled for a penalty. No review, no stoppage of play, no foul called. Brazil uh, goes right down and scores the second goal instead of a possible game-tying penalty kick uh, for 1-1. And uh, Argentina is out of the semis of Copa America. Brazil is in the final. And um, so, you know, a lot of going on yesterday in the world of soccer. And um, we'll see what happens today. Thanks for tuning into the show. As always, you can watch live at DanielWorkman.com, 9 a.m. Eastern Standard Time, weekdays. Thanks uh, for following the show, watching the show, and uh, congrats to the U.S. Women's National Team as they prepare for the final of the Women's World Cup coming up on Sunday. We'll see everybody again tomorrow. Goodbye.